Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined today in a new studio, uh, a new spot anyway, for our recording by President Wyatt. Scott, it's good to see you again. It's good to see you, Steve. And uh, I like the digs. Do you? Yeah. Well, we... uh, For those of us, those of our listeners at home know that we had recorded for really the entirety of the the set of episodes that we've done so far in the Bradshaw House, the Center for Music Technology here. And we decided that with COVID, we needed a larger space and we moved out into what is the dining room of that space. And <laughs> all of a sudden we had uh, visitors in the middle of our recordings and, and street noise and some other things. And so we decided we'd just move it over to... SUU on Main, which um, interestingly, historically, was the old liquor store in Cedar City. So here we are, and our new studio goes over at the old liquor store. Anyway, yeah, there's something about just being in here that makes me feel a little bit more <laughs> loose and <laughs> a little. Yeah, it's it's Steve's the office, and uh, there's a hot tub in here. That's and right. It's really nice. Absolutely. We'll be jumping in there afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Anyway, President, um, this is our spring 2021. Um, uh, run of podcasts episodes, and we had determined that we very much like the idea of interviewing people who are competing against us, and um, uh, the and and getting their sense of what they think and of what their students who are participating in their products uh, get about the value of uh, uh, education that we offer versus the type that they offer and where they intersect and maybe where they don't. Anyway, we have a we have a special guest joining us today and I'll let you introduce him. Thanks, Steve. Well, we have Peter Fowler and Peter has uh, driven all the way up from St. George to meet with us here in, lo- in person. And Peter is the president of Workflow Academy. Uh, thank you for joining us, Peter. It is excellent to be here. i really excited to just stick it to the bureaucracy, stick it to the man. And, and <laughs> well, well, we're the guys to stick it to, I imagine. Well, we, <laughs> we, um, before we went on the air, I, I uh, mentioned to Peter that our audience really is a higher education audience. So it's, it's kind of an industry audience. And and Peter, you should feel completely free to tell us what you think. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I have a lot of nice <laughs> things to say. I, I, I have a degree in Russian literature, so I can't exactly just excoriate higher education. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited to talk. Thanks for having me. But we but we both have missions that are similar. Exactly. And we go about it in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say similar, they're similar in the sense that um, we're preparing people for jobs. Absolutely. Well, tell us about um, Workflow Academy. So Workflow Academy, the, f- the focus is job placement, essentially. We, we are looking to upskill 
students to a point that they are able to get a, a fairly with with a high amount of confidence, get an interview and a placement um, in our niche. What is our niche? Well, we've picked a really fast growing, easy, low hanging fruit niche: cloud technology. Right? Uh, it's it's a super fast growing industry. We work with a particular subset of products called CRMs, Customer Relationship Management. Um, if you've ever heard of Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoho CRM, Infusionsoft, etc. Those are the types of products we're talking about. And what we found is there's an incredible demand for this software in the marketplace. Uh, the, the way I always term it is if you were a web developer, a website designer in 2003, your door was getting banged down day after day after day by big companies that weren't quite ready for the internet revolution and needed your help putting together a good website, right? In 2020, there's Squarespace, Wix, etc. Uh, that, that niche has kind of been filled. I consider our niche of cloud-based uh, technologies for automating and organizing a business's processes, that's, uh, that's, we are the 2003 of website design, uh, except it's 2021 and there's still a whole blue ocean of companies that need what we can set up, right? That's, that's really the vision. And with that vision and with that demand comes an immense demand for human capital, an immense demand for people that understand how to set up and implement these systems. We fill that gap, rapid training, 30 to 100 hours currently. We are going to expand that out probably to a max of about 200 hours. It is delivered 100% online and remote. It is also, I'll use a fun buzzword because I'm on an education podcast. I know <laughs> not many of my students get this when I tell them it is asynchronous, about 90, 95% yeah, asynchronous, um, which, which is a huge boon to us. It means we can scale without having to add too many new instructors and mentors. The 5% is career planning and education um, and, and mentorship and answering questions as students get up and running. Uh, but but really, it's it's a practical focused. I've had students take it in two weeks and and get interviews at the end of the two weeks and have a job within within four total, right? Uh, so that's that's that I guess is what I pit against the four year degree to say we have a turnaround time of of potentially a month up to three months uh, and at a much lower cost and at a much lower time investment versus four years, right? And it's not quite that simple, but. That's maybe where I can start uh, sticking sticks into your bicycle wheels. <laughs> well, Peter, so what is the um, – give us a description of the average student. Good question. Um, again, in this space, we're still kind of when – I, when I tell people what we are teaching, a lot of people get a little – get a little nervous and they think, okay, so I need to be a programmer, right? Or I need to be a, a McKinsey consultant that, that wants to work in software, right? No. Since this software first came out maybe 20 years ago, over time, so much effort has been put into making it far more easy to implement, right? The idea is that more people, if more people are able to implement it, then more people are able to buy it, sell it, and get use from it. So what we're looking at now is we get students from all different walks of life. Uh, I, I mentioned to Scott, uh, the, the 55-year-old bookkeeper from Arkansas with no college degree. She has a lot of business acumen. She's a hard worker, and she understands QuickBooks. So it wasn't that hard to parlay her knowledge of existing technology and bookkeeping 
into into a role where she's implementing automated software for companies trying to solve bottlenecks, right? Uh, she she doesn't come from a traditional educational background, but she has business acumen in spades and feels comfortable on a computer. That's really what it comes down to. If someone's 18 and has the, those skills, someone's 55 and has those skills, it really, really doesn't matter to us. As long as you have that business acumen, we can usually do something with you. Uh, so, so, I mean, that's... That's, I'm even describing the lowest hanging fruit. If you don't have business acumen, we still might find something for you, right, as a, as a developer or, or a project manager. But really, our ideal student is one who gets excited by solving problems for businesses and feels comfortable working remotely on a computer. So, on, um, so you're describing anybody from a high school graduate all the way up to a late, mid-career. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we get, we've, we've gotten more interest, honestly, from the late to mid-career than we have from the kind of traditional hiring pipelines of, of graduating seniors in college. Would a late-career person be more successful in this role? Potentially. Uh, what we found, again, if you're talking about the two different skill sets of, of business acumen and experience versus your comfort on a computer— more of our late career people come with the former and less with the latter, right? Whereas the, the earlier career, younger generations feel far more comfortable on a computer, but maybe don't have the experience. But again, uh, the, the other thing to say is our niche is so talent starved. There's been not nearly enough effort put into finding, and, and, and I don't hold higher education culpable, but the, the fact remains that there is there's a huge gap, and so you don't necessarily need to be a perfect candidate. You don't necessarily need to have five years of experience in this field. People are happy. Uh, the employers that hire from me are happy to take a smart, a generally competent and smart person, slap a coat of technical training paint on them, and get them into an apprenticeship, internship, or entry-level job and figure that they'll learn on the job. What kind of salaries do these students expect to see that uh, range? It, it, it makes it real easy for me to pitch my training when, <laughs> when I can tell people all of the positions that we have been hiring or that we have hired out to this point. First off, before we even talk salary, remote work, flexible schedule. I took my son to the gym this morning. He went to the daycare. Uh, I went and walked on the treadmill. I talked to a client. We then drove home, I made him a sandwich, we hung out for a couple hours, and then I, I went back to work, right? Flexible schedule, remote schedule, starting wages for the, the lowest I've seen is 45000 a year, generally with benefits. The highest I've seen for entry level is 60000 and it just grows from there, right? The capability for wage growth is immense. Those are really entry level to us means a lot of on the job training. If you prove yourself, there are, there are many people two years out of programs like mine with multi or six figure salaries, right? 110, 120, 150. And then there's, there's multiple entrepreneurship opportunities as well. Start your own consultancy, right? Start a, a software company building on top of these platforms. Uh, there's, there's just an immense amount of opportunity for people who come out and I, I, I worry that higher ed might not be fast enough to build the infrastructure necessary to teach people what we have to teach because 
I'm not saying it's going away, but the, the immediacy of the talent need is, is, is right now. We need to make solutions right now. Yeah, and um, of all the things that, uh, Steve, all the things that higher education is famous for, one of them isn't. <laughs> Speed, Speed. Yeah. is that what you're going to say? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We have committees, and we really think things through, and it takes us time. And then we have to get it approved through the committees, and then we have to get it approved through um, whoever the governing board is. Then we That's go right. to the accreditation, and so there's there are a fair number of processes that um, we're very happy with, but they aren't fast. Yes. Yeah. If you, if you were to bring in, you know, to equate it to a dry cleaners, if you were to bring in something, we'd slap down a little thing at the end and say, how's a year from next Thursday <laughs> for your pickup? Cause it just, we, and, and we even move pretty quickly president. I think at SUU, we, we're actually on the, on the fast end of higher ed and that does not make us fast. <laughs> it just makes us faster. Agreed. Okay. Yeah. We, we famously had a conversation with our former governor um, who said he was frustrated by higher ed because it moved at the speed of peanut butter. And he very happily gave us the idea that we moved at least at the speed of warm peanut butter <laughs> here. So, and I, I think that's a pretty apt analogy. <laughs> what kind of, um, um, the, for those that you're working with, how many of them have college degrees? Have you been able to... How long has how long has uh, Workflow Academy been? So we've been out of beta testing for about three months. So we we did thirteen beta testing students. Every single one of them got multiple job interviews. Two of them elected to not move on and, and find a job anyways. The other eleven have been hired. And of those, college education wise, I think we were at about thirty percent. Which let's say let's say I think four of them, yeah. Um, had college degrees, right? The interesting thing to note is one of my best graduates who who's he's already had about 75 grand a year in the, the six months since he got hired, right? Because he's just done that well. Um, his degree is in mechanical engineering, bachelor's and master's from the University of Utah. Did that prepare him for this job? Absolutely. I can say that, that his higher ed prepared him um, in parts for this job. Do I think that he required six years plus of mechanical engineering education to be prepared for this job? No. And I, I think that's maybe the biggest quibble that my students have had with their higher ed is you are bolting on lots of uh, extraneous, you could say, education. Um, and, and we can argue about whether, whether uh, political science or general ed is extraneous. I'm more talking about think of all the technical mechanical engineering curriculum he went through to end up never using, right? He ended up not quite finding a role in mechanical engineering. It never quite fit for him. Then he was out of college for too long and his master's made him overqualified for entry-level positions. And all of a sudden he came to our door and, and found a niche that he, he really likes. Uh, so yeah, those are, I, I, I'm interested in maybe a more philosophical conversation about, about this. Um, Cause uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so um we should follow up on this discussion um, in a couple years when you've seen hundreds and hundreds Absolutely. of students go through. And it would be interesting to see, um, you know, based on the profile of this, your student coming in, how their success is two or three years later. Absolutely. Just be interesting, wouldn't it? Um, but let's go philosophical. 
So philosophically, <laughs> again, I mentioned at the top of this, my degree is in human resource management uh, and kind of general business management with a focus on human resources and then Russian literature, double major. I adore, I went to Brigham Young University, adored my time there, loved my professors, research assistant, thought I was going to be a, a, a professor, got my PhD applications done before having a change of heart, right? And, and I would not give that away for the world, right? At the same time, it's, I, I, I can say that in my current role as a technology consultant and educator, I do not often quote Tolstoy. And if I do, it's more for rhetorical flourish than, than for any actual uh, use to the person I'm talking to, right? So you can make like the utilitarian argument, was it worth it to me to go and, and get my degrees, right? Was it worth it to me? Could, could I be doing what I'm doing now without having taken the courses that I took and, and, and gone through uh, the entire saga of my education? I mean... We can, we can banter. I, I think that I needed that education. It made me a more whole person. But again, I wonder, did it have to take four years, right? Did it have to take four plus years? Is there some extraneous element of that, that coursework that I could have lopped off without any detriment to my future career or personal success? And I think there's a case to be made there. Yeah, there's a couple there's a couple um, reasons, and this is a philosophical discussion we oftentimes have within the university amongst ourselves, which is, what is our mission, mm-hmm. right? And, and um, one of our leading missions, of course, is to prepare people for jobs. And another one is, is to just uh, prepare people for good citizenship, to yeah. be participants in democracy, to to develop um, an understanding of other people and ideas and places and things so that um, the world gets to be a better place. Um, and we seem to have done spectacularly well <laughs> at it. Yeah, and you understand Russian literature, so your, your um, outlook on people from that part of the world might be more informed Absolutely. than somebody else. Absolutely. So we've got a couple different missions, but let's just stay on on your track for for yes. now. And, um, I'm uh, neither Steve nor I are doing what we were trained to do. Um, what were you trained to do? I know Steve was in was in music, and. I mean, he's he's running a podcast recording right now, so kudos to start music education. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but to be fair, part of my music education in my life was recording, right? Yeah. But I did not get any of that from the universities oh, I attended. See, that's fair. Yeah. Um, and and so I often, what well, in fact, uh, Scott and I at a previous institution partnered on a commercial music degree mm-hmm. where he was the president and helped us get it. Um, helped it, helped us get it prepared and approved, and and I when I sat down to write that degree, I thought, well, I'm going to write down 25 things that I wish my um, university degree had mm-hmm. told me about being a professional musician. Mm-hmm. And I stopped when I got to 63, <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah, we really do need this this degree program. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, I. I 
it's it's not just the length; it's the accuracy. Absolutely. Even, even when we even when we purport to prepare yes. someone for a a, de, a a a lifetime of work in a certain area with a degree, we very often miss fairly wildly. Absolutely. Either because we don't we don't know exactly anymore what it takes to be part of that industry. We, the people that are teaching are too f- far removed from actually yes. doing it, or we we simply don't have any interest in really um, in really providing that kind of nuts and bolts yes. education we're we're theoreticians not you know tacticians absolutely and that's that's that is where i see again from from the standpoint of a businessman trying to make money helping train people up to a certain level of competence the thing that higher education does so much better than i can do is a general preparation but then B, getting outside of the, the idea of student preparation, you guys provide an incredible administrative bulwark to funnel smart people through and make it easy for me to come out at the end and pick up generally competent people. And like I, maybe it's a crude metaphor, but, but slap an extra coat of, of technical training paint onto them to make them employable, right? So if I were to argue about if I were to say a massive opportunity that I see, one that that makes me try and partner with with SUU and with other uh, universities, I want to tap the immense talent pools that you've done such a good job of preparing. And I, the 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 implicit message there is you've prepared them eighty percent of the way, right? But in many students' cases, I mean, even in my own, uh, I was prepared extremely well, but I didn't have that final call it a niche, call it a, a unique skill set, call it a marketable skill set. I didn't have that that final little oomph that goes onto a resume that makes an employer feel like, okay, this person understands what work is like in my industry and I would like to have them, right? Yeah, there's certain life skills and experiences yes. that that uh, make it easier. Um, President, you, you went to law school, all right? You were an attorney. We've talked about that many times. Did, did law school, which at least ostensibly is a professional school, uh, did it prepare you for the profession? So I, I will answer that without a yes or no. Just like a lawyer. <laughs> so the answer is yes, it did prepare you. I have an undergraduate degree in economics, so maybe my answer could be it depends. <laughs> um, the... Um, when I started into law school, law school was still basically theoretical. Mm-hmm. There was just starting, um, it had just really begun to do some kind of internship type mm-hmm. experiences. And, uh, and I jumped into one of those, and so I, I went down to the Salt Lake City attorney's office and prosecuted a couple cases under the guidance of a full-time prosecutor. And it was just because it was something I was interested in Mm -hmm. doing for experience. It wasn't that I was interested in being a prosecutor Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, But but that was um, 30 years ago. And I think that law schools are just a little bit more. Yeah. Um, helpful on careers, but mm-hmm. but when I went to law school, there wasn't a single job on running a law office. Mm-hmm. How do you bill? How do you do any of those kinds of things? It was mm-hmm. purely theoretical. And I, I recall in in a property law class um, with the 
professor going on and on about some archaic um, rule from old England. And someone said, what's the rule today? And he, and he gave the student this weird, my, my fellow student gave him kind of a weird look and said, why do you care? <laughs> and, and the goal of the faculty member was <laughs> different than what, mm-hmm. than right. what we thought. And, and we were probably both right and probably both wrong. But, but the professor was trying to teach us to think like a lawyer. Yeah. And we were trying to learn how to practice law. Yes. Um, and that analogy um, with you that we probably both can benefit from each other. Absolutely. But, but we need, in higher ed, we need to learn more um, on how to do what you've done. Yeah. Which is how do we pivot quickly? How do we develop programs um, to keep up with a rapidly changing market? And how do we get people so that they are genuinely prepared to start working the first day? My first day, um, Stephen Peter, in, in my law firm, I walked in, looked around, and I didn't have a clue. Right, you had to ask the. Uh, I went to the, the paralegal to. <laughs> yeah, we we didn't even really have paralegals. We uh, we had we had what you could call a legal assistant, but I had to go to her and say, "Help me figure out how to do this." And um, and she could help me with the forms, but she didn't know the deep thinking behind. That, see, that's it's you can make the argument again, putting this back into my line of work. You can make the argument that a four-year degree doesn't prepare a student at all for what I'm doing, right? For, for, for what you need to be able to do to understand a business's processes, uh, find the bottlenecks, and be able to find software solutions that help solve those. But, and you can make the, the argument, hey, if you had had a single class in college of actually you are setting up a demo system of this, then cool, you have the skill. The thing that college provides that I'm forced to admit, you can't only get it at college, but but it definitely engenders this skill is what about the brain to be able to look at a business and isolate those bottlenecks, right? You still need the skills in software to build the software to to fix those bottlenecks, but to be able to recognize them in the first place, process-based thinking, writing proposals. It's, it's an easy argument to make that, that yeah. college doesn't prepare, but, but you do in a more, I guess, uh, uh, nebulous way that's, that's harder to point exactly to, but you know it when you see it, right? Yeah. My, my uh, first law partner, um, <clears throat> people came to see him for legal advice, mm-hmm. partly because he understood business so mm-hmm. well. So they could come in and talk about their business problems, and he knew – he really understood yes. their problems. He, he understood banking. He understood how to get loans. He understood um, every aspect of running a successful business. And so his, his advice was much better than a pure um, technician. See, and what, what interests me the most about partnering with higher education, and, and if I were talking to the higher educators listening, it would be find people like me that, uh, we we have pure industry experience, right? That's what we are doing. We're not academics. We, we, all we do is is industry experience, and is that I mean there there are entrepreneur in residence programs uh, at, at plenty of universities. I guarantee that there are tons and tons of providers like me who are trying to fill talent niches, 
And if we were more closely involved with the, 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 the education processes, A, we could build our curriculum into existing courses, right, so that students are graduating uh, with, with skills that they've gotten as part of their coursework. But far more importantly is that idea of the internship, right, the idea of, of actual hands-on work experience in the field. I feel like if, if we could partner more closely together I have so many employers that would love to hire SUU students, right? Especially if they knew that they came with a predetermined modicum of, of training and talent that I like that concept of partnering before the students leave, right? So much of the career development and, and placement happens right before a student graduates, right? But if I could have had access to students in their freshman, sophomore, junior years, I could have formed their education more around a potential career path that they might fall into, right? Yeah, yeah. We, the, one of the things that we do wrong, at least we do wrong for many students, and it's not necessarily our fault because half the students that show up don't know what to major. Mm-hmm. Right. They're still trying to figure that out. But, but one of the things that we do wrong is we focus on majors. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you want to major in? And here are the requirements to work through that major. We, we should almost have majors as an afterthought. Yes. It should be, what do you want to do as a career? Yes. And then let's, let's design the pathway to get there mm-hmm. because for me, I, there were 50 majors I could yes. have pursued to go to law school. Right. Absolutely. And that's, again, to me too, uh, sometimes when I'm posting jobs to higher ed, uh, a lot of you use Handshake. Uh, you post a job to Handshake and it says, would you like to target any specific majors? And it's like, no. Uh, do you have a setting for me to target smart people? Do you have a, <laughs> can, can I filter by smart people? Just right. Smart people, please. <laughs> Again, there were so many kids in my, almost none of my Russian literature major cohorts went on to, to become uh, doctorates in, in Russian literature and, and teach in the profession, right? Most of us went on somewhere else. And that, I, I think you're absolutely right, Scott. I think that if I had been able to get into college and say, instead of a major, these are maybe some careers that interest me that I would love to do a, a three-month internship in. It's kind of that idea of, of uh, a road you drive down. You're either going to like that road and keep driving, or by driving down it, you'll realize this is the wrong road for me. But so many students don't even get close to answering that question until they're at the end of their college or even after graduation. I I was thinking on, on the drive up here about uh, people I know of and their, their higher education experiences. I have a good friend just graduated with a degree in English. He worked at a, as essentially an orderly at a mental health hospital, enjoyed his work, enjoyed working in mental health, right? But kept saying, I'm not gonna stay in mental health. Like, this is not my career. This is just a job to get me through college. But he never quite found a, 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 a an internship or an opportunity that, that developed and worked on the skills he got in his degree path and so guess what he did when he graduated? He stayed as on as an orderly at the mental health hospital, right? That's, that's what he knew. So that's something that, that Brigham Young University did fantastic that I really appreciated is they, they have a lot of on-campus internships, three-credit class uh, where they actually they, they work with enough employers that they just say, we have enough projects for everyone. Uh, the, the employer gets free work and to feel like they're contributing um, and the, the students get a nice little resume booster. Um, and it's not, again, it's kind of a forced thing almost. You, you, you don't have to be a proactive student to go out and find it. The university says, we've, 
we've attracted enough for you. You have to do this. Um, it's for your own good. And, and I think they get rave reviews. I think it's an awesome program. So yeah. Peter, it, where you, we, we talk about this actually all the time in our realm here. And, and we have had, I think, a, a legitimate excuse being in Cedar City that we're not surrounded by uh, a bunch of industry, Ooh, right? That's about to change. Yeah. That is and, changing, and so Steve. I'm, I'm particularly interested in your thinking about that because because your whole world is remote work. Absolutely. And, and what does a remote internship look like? How, a, how does that work? A remote internship works, honestly, I think, better for many students than, than uh, an in-person one. And the, the thing that you sacrifice is you do sacrifice that that being immersed in an actual office lifestyle, getting to know lots of different people, uh, just kind of being there on premises can have some value. And I, I won't detract from that. However, being able to work uh, essentially a fairly flexible schedule according to your school schedule being able to, I mean, with the interns we've brought on, we talk with them two or three times a day, one-on-one. -on -one. We also, we do make it a point to bring them or fly them out if we need to um, in person at least once in their internship, right? That, that flexibility allows us to tap talent pools in literally any university or any city or state uh, in America, right? And it, it allows also, I mean, I... I I'm going to get a little bit technical, but I want people to capture the vision that I have for this. In a niche like mine, there are total, over the next three years, I'd say between five and 8,000 total jobs that will be available uh, for, for the people that are smart enough to, to get those jobs, right? For If I, if I disperse those five to 8,000 jobs out across all of America— then I'm going to have a couple people in Oklahoma, a few in Chicago, right? And, and it won't make any real major impact on any one geographic area. But if a university like an SUU or, or a Brigham Young University, or especially the smaller schools that don't have a lot of industry surrounding them, uh, that are looking for kind of a, a differentiation factor, if they pushed and said, hey, if we're smart enough and move fast enough, we could get 500 of those 8,000 jobs. By, by achieving economies of scale, by having coursework and bringing on instructors and having certification programs and running an internship program through here. I, I mean, I'll pose the question to you guys. What would be the impact of 500 new tech internships and follow-on full-time jobs? What would be the impact uh, on the SUU career placement metrics if, if I dangled that carrot out there? It'd be pretty big especially in Cedar City, yeah, right? It's pretty big. And that's that's the opportunity that that I feel like a smart institution is going to to jump on. Uh, Scott made the point when we were talking about this before, the problem with niche education is what happens when the niche dies out, right? I'm describing a, a niche. The good news, I guess, in my particular niche is I, I can guarantee that for the next at least 20 years, skills in remote work, cloud computing, computer, and business acumen, uh, that's not going to go away, right? Those are skills that don't go away. So I feel like we're, we're kind of in a, it feels a little 1849-esque gold rush, uh, trying to find <laughs> the right outfit, trying to find the right tools to, to tap this market. The old 
gold rush. Exactly. I, I've actually been reading about that right now. And I, I think in many ways, this realm that we're working in right now that we're talking about is sort of the wild, wild west Absolutely. for hire. Yeah, these Absolutely. types of partnerships. and Well, yeah, and you're, you're being forced into uncomfortable positions we, with, with... This whole set of podcasts exactly. is going to be an uncomfortable you're, you're you're being you're being forced to engage with with 26 year old Peter uh, who who built a site in in a few months right you have entire institutions and and years of thought that's put into your curriculum and armies of of professors and curriculum developers and I'm coming and saying I can do that much faster and much simpler and and deploy it much quicker and it's it's uncomfortable for both of us right because we maybe won't talk about all the concessions. I've had to make that that you guys do a lot better than I do. Maybe you do want to talk about that to, to assuage some bruised egos that might be listening. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't think we bruised anybody's <laughs> ego. These are good conversations. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. What advice have you given us? You've told us. Um, if I just read into the whole discussion, what have we got to learn? One of them is. We need to find ways of creating programs more quickly. Absolutely. Um, we need to find ways to help students, um, even if a student is studying Russian literature. Yes. We need to help students figure out a pathway so that they can continue to read Russian literature after they graduate. Absolutely. Um, a job, a career, something that gives them the stability that then they can have leisure time Absolutely. to continue to study and read. Absolutely. So, so that's actually a really interesting thing. Uh, you know, you, we've, we talk about the fact that general education serves a variety of purposes. And, mm -hmm. and, and one of the things, Peter, that you mentioned specifically was general education. Yeah. Should, should it take that long and so forth? And, and should we be doing it? And this is, this is certainly a conversation that we have. But, but one of the biggest roles that I see is that general education must be such that it inspires a desire for lifelong learning absolutely on that particular subject so do you still read absolutely right absolutely you do it because you love it right yes. and you it's not part of your daily you know grind yes but but you do it because you love it and and so helping helping people to find out what they love is is actually a, a pretty big important part that the university has that's separate from career education, yes. right? Uh, and and so it, it's, you know, Scott, you were a philosophy major. I know you still read philosophy. I, I know yeah. that's very interesting to you, right? Right, yeah. And I, so despite the fact it's not, I mean, it is part of your daily life too. You have many philosophical conundrums and lots of legal <laughs> conundrums as a president of a university. But but nevertheless, your your love of of the mind, the life of the mind is it, one of your defining characteristics. So it was great that you were able to, to study yeah. that. Yeah, some people say, because I have a dual major, Peter, just like you, I had mm -hmm. two majors. And uh, some people will say, well, um, they weren't hiring a lot of philosophers when you graduated. <laughs> and one of my answers is I'm a philosopher every day mm -hmm. because I Absolutely. think every day. And... Um, the uh, the founder of the first university, so far as we know, is Plato. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so Plato and I have that in common. That's right. <laughs> we both That's read. Right. We both studied Socrates. Both, you both read Plato. <laughs> <laughs> we both read Plato. <laughs> we didn't both read Socrates because Socrates didn't write. <laughs> didn't anything, write but, exactly. That's right. But we both studied Socrates. Um, yeah, but that's an interesting piece, isn't it? See, I think um, I think what Steve's getting at though is that I feel like a lot of students feel some cognitive dissonance of they would they would almost rather it's like yes, if I have a job in in the bag, then I would love to kind of in the the next rung of my hierarchy of needs achieve a love for Russian literature, right? Yes. And and not only am I saying that, I'm also saying. Does it take 16 weeks, 50 hour, fifty uh, minutes, three times a week to instill a love of Russian literature in someone or to, to at least uh, cover that? I, I think there's much to be said about Absolutely. the delivery Absolutely. of general education, about that, the, the life love part Absolutely. of that, that, that we just have done it. We've done it the way we do everything else. Yes. We just do it in our very most traditional Socratic way way yes. and maybe maybe that's not the best way anymore i don't know yeah content delivery is an entire separate discussion uh, i could get my my wife uh, is a teacher and is into pedagogy we can talk all about flipped classrooms for all 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 the live long day um what else have we learned from you um if if i were to to hammer in kind of the the what i wish i could communicate to higher education and i assume that this podcast uh, will be listened to and implemented by every higher ed administrator in the country so Absolutely. this is my, this is my big shot <laughs> um, i'd say that that internship and or career focus it does not need to be even an entire four year focus do not underestimate whatsoever the impact of a one or two month internship on the trajectory of an entire student's career, right? Uh, of an internship, of a of a mentorship program where they get to talk and, and shadow people in industry. I think that that, the, again, it doesn't, the whole four year degree does not have to be an internship or, or, or always be focused on career, but far too many students graduate four years without any sort of industry experience and they don't know where to go, right? So that would be the number. That's that's maybe the number one takeaway. The number two, and and this is le- this is more a product of my being in a particular niche. I think that especially smaller institutions um, like SUU, nestled in in smaller towns, need to. I mean, I'm sure you've all read the Innovative University by Clayton Christensen, thinking about competitive advantage and and what is it that you strategically do better than other people. I think that universities more and more need to find niches. You can no longer just get by by teaching a similar general ed curriculum, a similar business curriculum, a similar curriculum as as pretty much anyone else because those skills more and more are not enough to get people placed and get people jobs. I really, again, with the speed that we put together this curriculum and have seen success with it, I'm realizing there's no reason that at an SUU or, or, or a, a Brigham Young University or, or some of these smaller schools that there shouldn't be a program dedicated to uh, cloud CRM development, right? And maybe it's not a major, maybe it's an emphasis, but I really, I'm, I'm fairly sure I could take almost any of your business graduates and get them a job in my space, right? With the right amount of training and prep, get them a job in here. And I, 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 
I want to push you to, to find those niches. There are so many other niches like mine that if you find the right industry talent and, and bring them into your fold and say, hey, we're going to, you don't need to write them a blank check, but say, hey, we'll, we'll cut through some red tape for you. Uh, I think there's a lot of good that can be done for the students at the end of it. Well, that's really, that's really interesting. And um, something for us, Steve, to continually remember. Indeed. Um, internships, um, in particular, massively important. And uh, interestingly enough for me, and I'll give you this, uh, I had what could be described as an internship when I was in law school, mm-hmm. and it kind of discouraged me from becoming a lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it wasn't actually until I was a lawyer that I said, I like this. Mm-hmm. Because the, the tasks that I was given as an intern were not at all similar to the tasks that I had as a lawyer. I was doing the grunt, undesirable yeah. work rather than the rewarding work, which was working with real people and mm-hmm. helping them solve their problems. And so um, I think one of the values of an internship is, is that it, gives us that experience, and it also helps us understand whether this is a career we want to go into. But we have to remember that sometimes the internship is a far cry from the Absolutely. actual job. Yeah, yeah that's, and that's, um, that's, right. that's completely fair. And that's where I don't, I don't want to load your plate up too much with, with stuff you need to be thinking about, but a good, it, what, it's often said that you could, if you could give up your salary for the first two years post-college, and have a really, really, really good mentor as a boss, it would be definitely, it would be worth it to you to sacrifice that short-term salary in order to gain someone who can help you uh, build a much better career, right? Obviously, I don't want people sacrificing salaries, but mentorship on the job is, I would say that the mentors I had in my job are as, had as profound of an impact in a much shorter time than some of my best professors. You've almost described medical school. Yeah. Because you go to school and then you go out and you you spend a couple of years just working yes. for almost nothing. Yes. Um, See, and super I, interesting. Yeah. Have, have you heard, I don't want to get down a rabbit hole, but I'm sure you've heard uh, there's, there's the Purdue, um, I know they were a university that did this, the income sharing agreements where you get free tuition in exchange for an income share agreement. Uh, on your first, I think, three years of employment or until your job makes enough um, to pay off your tuition, right? I think it's like an 18 to 20% income share off the gross. So it's a ton of money, but it's ideas like that. And again, you mentioned medical school where I think a lot of students would be thrilled to, to trade off some of the, sh- I mean, they're trading off short-term gains for long-term success by going to college. I think a lot more of them would be willing to do apprenticeships um, uh, like that and trade off the, the monetary gain in order to find something that they love and that has a lot of uh, upward income trajectory. Steve, we've got enough to go another whole podcast on this. We do. <laughs> we do. We're probably running out of time. Peter, this has been super interesting. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, at 26 years old, congratulations for starting a business and, and um, a successful one where you're training lots of people who are getting great jobs. I appreciate that, Scott. And um, I'll be excited in a couple of years to hear more stories about uh, the successes of your students and, um, 
And then hopefully by then we'll be able to report back that we've we've continually improved on our side as well. I love that. I'll have you onto my podcast when I get big enough to start having existential <laughs> crises about whether I'm whether my models get enough for my students. <laughs> You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our in-studio guest today, Peter Fuller. He's the CEO of the Workflow Academy. Uh, you should check out Workflow Academy online. And uh, we thank Peter for joining us. And we thank you, our listeners, for listening. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu dot edu